Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith coming to you this week from the annual meeting of the National Religious Broadcasters in Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Every week, Warren and I are bringing you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has given us. On today's program, we discuss the fire at a Haiti orphanage run by an American church. It highlights problems with evangelical ministry in Haiti. Also on today's program, sexual abuse allegations at one of the most influential independent churches in the country, First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. All that and a whole lot more on today's edition of the Ministry Watch podcast. We begin today with an update on Will Creek Community Church. We talked about this last week. What's new? Well, a couple of updates, Natasha. Ministry Watch obtained some internal documents from Willow Creek that indicate the church's attendance has declined significantly since the sexual abuse scandals broke. Weekly attendance at all Willow Creek campuses has fallen below 18,000. Now, I know 18,000 sounds like a big number in terms of church attendance, but that's down from about 25,000 that attended Willow Creek services in 2015. Wow, that is a big drop. Yeah, and consider this, Natasha, the worship center at the main South Barrington campus of Willow Creek holds 7,200 people, and they have three weekend services, one on Saturday night and two on Sunday. That means that the total weekend capacity of the uh, church is about 21,000, and total attendance for all three services for the past few weeks has been around 6,000. Wow, so that must mean that some of these services are nearly empty. Is there anything else? Well, yeah, there is one more thing that I wanted to mention. Uh, Dr. B, uh, Gilbert Bilizekian, one of the mentors of Bill Hybels, who we've talked about before on this program, has been accused of sexual abuse. And we reported in our conversation last week, but now Dr. B has denied all the charges against him, though Willow Creek itself has not retracted its earlier statement that it found the charges against Dr. B to be credible. So all that to say that this story is continuing to unfold. Yeah, it does. And of course, we'll keep you posted. Now, another story involving sexual abuse in an influential church is unfolding in Indiana. Can you share with us some of those details? Yeah, a woman named Joy Ryder says she's seeking justice after many, many years for not only herself, but for others to encourage other victims of sexual abuse to stand up for their rights. Last week, Ryder filed a lawsuit against the First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana, alleging that its youth pastor at the time uh, repeatedly raped her when she was a teenager. Now, this happened in the 1970s, and all of this comes to us originally from the Times of Northwest Indiana. 40 years is a long time ago. How do you prove a rape that happened 40 years ago? I don't know if you can or you can, but that's not really what she's trying to do in a criminal court. Uh, It's important to note here that this is not a criminal uh, action, but a civil suit. Um, Joy Ryder says she's looking for justice, not only for herself, but also to put predators on notice that there's no statute of limitations on doing the right thing. And I understand that the First Baptist Church of Hammond holds a special place in the world of fundamentalism. Can you tell us more about that? 
Yeah, First Baptist of Hammond has wielded enormous influence among independent Baptist and Bible churches for more than 100 years. Uh, though it was founded in 1887, more than 130 years ago, uh, it was really under the leadership of Jack Hiles, who was the pastor from 1959 to 2001, more than 40 years, that it became one of the first megachurches in the United States. That happened during the 1970s, and it also claimed to have the highest Sunday school attendance of any church in the world for a time. Throughout the 1990s, the church had a weekly attendance of more than 20,000 and was regularly listed among the largest churches in the country. And what can you tell us about Joy Ryder, the woman bringing the suit? Yeah, Joy Ryder alleges that church officials covered up abuse allegations against David Hiles. You remember I mentioned Jack Hiles a little bit earlier. He's the pastor, the, the man that was the pastor for 40 years. Well, David Lyles, the alleged perpetrator, is the son of the late Jack Riles. And Joy Ryder's civil suit does seek monetary damages. But again, I think her bigger point is that she just wants uh, this situation to go public and uh, to give a voice to some of the victims because she claims there have been uh, more victims than just her over the years. In fact, today, Jory Ryder leads a nonprofit support group called Out of the Shadows that's uh, designed to help sexual abuse victims. She started that group about six years ago. Now, from my understanding, these are not the first allegations against David Hiles, are they? No, they're not. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram reported a couple of years ago that in addition to Ryder, at least three other teens have accused Hiles of sexual misconduct. But he apparently never faced charges then, uh, or in, for that matter, the Star-Telegram said, even sat for an interview with police related to the allegations. Hmm. Now, this isn't the first time that a church has been involved in sexual abuse allegations, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. This church has been in the news um, a little too often in recent years for uh, similar issues. In 1991, uh, A.V. Ballinger, who was a deacon of the church, was convicted of fondling a seven-year-old girl uh, in Sunday school. And Jack Schapp, who is a son-in-law of the longtime pastor Jack Hiles, the man we mentioned earlier, and who was himself a pastor for a season, pleaded guilty in 2012 to charges involving sexual encounters with a teenager. And those began when the teenager was 16 years old. Now, Jack Schapp is 62 years old, and he reportedly is being held in a federal corrections institute in Ashland, Kentucky. He isn't eligible for parole until 2023. Wow. So it sounds like these incidents just keep on repeating themselves. Yeah, you know, they do. And, you know, and I'm not trying to say that there's anything systemic or, you know, structurally corrupt uh, about First Baptist of Hammond, Indiana. But I will say this, anytime you've got a large church that has no outside accountability or transparency, and that happens in a lot of these big independent churches, that's a recipe for trouble. Uh, that was the situation we saw at Willow Creek, uh, and it's one that we're seeing again here. It was also the case at Seattle's Morris Hill Church a few years ago, though in that case, sexual abuse wasn't the problem, but it was other issues of management and leadership. I think the moral of the story, Natasha, is pretty simple. Transparency and accountability should be the order of the day when it comes to church governance. Indeed. And speaking of that, can you give us a quick update before we go on break on what's happening at the other church that you've mentioned before, the Harvest Bible Chapel? 
Yeah, an audit of the troubled suburban Chicagoland Church Harvest Bible Chapel has just been released, and it showed that the ministry lost nearly 10% of its income from 2017 and to 2018, which were the years that were covered in the audit. The review also showed that the church owed $26.2 million on a mortgage that's due in August of 2022. Now, that number is significant because James McDonald, the pastor of the church, was receiving a large salary. In fact, some reports are that the salary exceeded a million dollars during that same time period. And we also learned that the church failed to match employee retirement plan contributions from March of 2019 to February of 2020, and that by March was about forty million dollars in debt. Warren, we've got to take a quick break. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And I'm Warren Smith reporting this week from Nashville, Tennessee. And we'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's SaveTheStorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Weekly Podcast. Up next is a follow-up on a story that took place a couple of weeks ago, the story of a fire at an orphanage in Haiti. You're right, Natasha. Back on February the 13th, a couple of weeks ago, fire killed uh, 17 orphans at an unlicensed facility in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and it was uh, a facility funded by a controversial U.S. church. The fatal fire was caused by a burning candle, which is a common risk in that country because it has a really undependable electrical system. Uh, The facility is one of two orphanages owned by the Church of Bible Understanding, which is kind of a, a separatist group based in Pennsylvania that's also over the years been accused of cultic activities. Uh, The church has worked, though, in Haiti since 1977, though it lost its license to operate orphanages three years ago due to unsanitary conditions. In fact, some of those unsanitary conditions included an alleged rat infestation along with inadequate staff training. Wow, that is a horrible story. But our correspondent, Steve Raby, wrote this week that the problem may not be limited just to the facility and that Christian donors here in the U.S. should be wary. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I've been to Haiti, Natasha, myself, and kind of seen uh, what happens down there. And, you know, it's close to the United States. And, uh, you know, we evangelicals send a lot of mission trips there and a lot of money there. Uh, In fact, an estimated $100 million uh, flows through orphanages alone uh, in Haiti, from mostly from the United States. And it's a largely unregulated network, and they range in quality, of course, 
according to the New York Times, from barely adequate to abominable. Uh, the orphanage that burned is one of se- more than 750 that are operating in the country, but only 35 out of that 750 are actually accredited by the government. Now, shouldn't we give them a little bit of slack considering the huge need that's there? Well, there is a huge need in Haiti, and, and and of course, that's what we do. We we cut them a little slack. We say, listen, there's this great need, and it's not a lot of money, but whenever you aggregate all that money, it, it is a huge amount of money. And it's also important to note, though, a couple of extra facts that I think would change our attitude about uh, giving money to orphanages in Haiti. Number one is that most of the kids that are in these orphanages are not truly orphans. In fact, only about 20% of the estimated 20 25,000 to 50,000 kids that are in Haitian orphanages are actually children with no living parents. Uh, Traditionally, in fact, parents who can't provide for their children leave them at facilities uh, that will promise to care for them. But studies show that doing that stunts the development of the kids. The kids would be much better off if we just supported the parents with the money that we're using to support the orphanages, or better yet, give the parents jobs. In fact, a 2018 CNN report said that many orphanages provided needy children with barely the basics of survival, but uh, these orphanages have also become sort of target-rich environments for pedophiles, for human trafficking, even organ trafficking, according to the CNN report. And of course, there's also still a lot of hunger, illness, abuse that goes on there as well. Wow, that is extremely disturbing, especially considering how many American Christians send money to Haiti. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to highlight this story, even though the fire itself took place a couple of weeks ago. Christian donors should not be seduced by heart-wrenching photos of children. They need to research the ministry and uh, before you give to the ministry. If you're not convinced that your money is being used wisely, it's real simple. Don't give them any money. That sounds like good advice. And Warren, I'd like to shift gears and talk about a story that has nothing short of bizarre. And that's the story of an Idaho couple who have left a trail of dead bodies and missing children in their wake. Yeah, you're right. It is bizarre. And even your setup, they've left a trail of dead bodies and missing children. It's like, how could that possibly be? But in fact, it's the case. On Thursday, February 20th, authorities in Hawaii arrested Lori Vallow. She's married to a man named Chad Daybell. In fact, they got married pretty recently, just in November, which is why I guess they're still known by their separate names, by their uh, not not by married names. Uh, they were married, though, after both of their spouses had died as a result of mysterious circumstances. And then in September, Lori Vallow's two children went missing. That is bizarre. And I understand that it gets even stranger still. Yeah, if you can imagine that, uh, it does. Uh, I mentioned that Lori Vallow was arrested in Hawaii. Well, she was there because she had just disappeared from Idaho as well. Uh, Because her kids went missing in September, the authorities had imposed a deadline on her to prove that her children were alive or report them even as missing. She fled, and the charges against her uh, included two felony counts of desertion and non-support of dependent children, resisting or obstructing officers, contempt of court, criminal solicitation to commit a crime. I mean, this is just really strange. Wow. I understand that Chad Dable, Lori Vallow's new husband, is pretty well known in the end times proper community for books he's written on end times and apocalyptic themes. 
Yeah, that's right. That adds a, sort of a whole religious dimension to this whole thing as well. Uh, in fact, several years ago, Lori Vallow told her then-husband, Charles, that she had been called by God to carry out the work of the 144,000 mentioned in the book of Revelation at Christ's second coming, which she predicted would take place in July of 2020, and that if her then-husband, Charles, got in her way, that she would murder him. Well, guess what? Charles also disappeared mysteriously, uh, but not before Charles had warned his lawyers of what Lori had said. In fact, uh, he said, I want to make sure that to let everyone know uh, that if something happens and that I'm killed, that it's my wife, Lori. At least that's what Charles Vallow said. And so, you know, he ended up dead and she ends up remarrying and all of that other stuff that we've already talked about, Natasha unfolded. Wow. It is hard to imagine that things could get any stranger than that. <laughs> what happens now? Well, the warrants that are were issued against uh, Lori Vallow that caused her to get arrested, they were taken out in Idaho. So she's expected to stay in trial there, but she's being held in Hawaii on $5 million bond because authorities there think she's a flight risk. And of course, she's already demonstrated that she is. Wow. Well, Warren, we have to take another break, but when we return, I want you to tell us a good story. No more mayhem. Do you promise? Yeah, I do promise. And in fact, I do have a great story this week about a Christian college in North Carolina that has come back from the brink of ruin that has a lot of great lessons for church and uh, Christian leaders around the country. Wonderful. That sounds way better. (laughs) I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host, Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to Ministry Watch Podcast, where we unpack stories of Christian ministries in the news, along with other items of interest to help you be a more effective financial steward. Warren, before the break, you promised a positive story about a turnaround at Montreat College. Tell us more. Yeah, I will. Well, uh, Natasha, you know that over the past few weeks, uh, we've been talking about Christian colleges uh, that have either gone out of business or are experiencing pretty severe financial hardship. That's right. I remember last week's story, we talked about uh, Concordia University in Portland suddenly shutting down. Yeah, and we mentioned that was likely to happen more and more in the years ahead because of the financial and demographic shifts that we're experiencing in this country. And, you know, that's why it's so encouraging to hear the story of Montreal College, which was on the verge of collapse six years ago, but which is now being called the Montreal Miracle. So what happened there? 
Well, let's go back to 2012. The college had to lay off 29 full-time employees, including many faculty. Uh, And in four years prior to that, the enrollment had plunged from about 750 to about 450 in 2013. But right about that time, they got a new president, a man named Paul Marrer, who, by the way, I've met. He's an outstanding leader and a renewed commitment to Christian ideals. Uh, That has apparently made a huge difference there. A lot of colleges are sort of distancing themselves from their Christian founding and their Christian roots. But Paul Maurer said that, you know, that's what makes us special. and We need to embrace it again. And so by 2019, which is, of course, just last year, they've had four straight years of growing enrollment. Montreat is now back up over 500 students. That's an important milestone. And in the past three years, Montreat has hired back 13 new full-time staff and 26 part-time faculty and staff. So all those people that they had to lay off uh, back in 2012, uh, many of them or, or others to take their place have come back. In addition to that, there have been 20 renovation or new construction projects, including a $2.7 million athletic complex. So it's really been uh, a great story. Yeah, and that is a huge turnaround. What were some of the keys there? Well, you know, I mentioned one of them, which is this uh, reinvigoration uh, of the Christian distinctives at the school, but there have been others. Uh, part of the renewal comes from a $6 million anonymous donation, which came in 2014. Part of it came from a new major. Um, they um, initiated a major in cybersecurity at Montreat. Now, a lot of Christian colleges are liberal arts schools, or they'll teach religion or Bible and those sorts of things, but to have a science major there has attracted an entire new brand of student because there are so few science programs in Christian colleges around the country. And again, as I mentioned, Paul Maurer made a push to get the college back on mission. And I want to read a quote from him that I think really tells the tale here. We reinserted biblical infallibility back into our statement of faith. It had been removed about a decade earlier, Maurer said. Our first priority was to clarify our Christ-centered identity. It was a higher priority even than finding money. Mm, I love that. And one of the things that I appreciate about this story is that it was a long and in-depth look at the school. Yeah, it really was. In fact, too long for us to go into here, but I strongly recommend that you read the entire article, which I think has a lot of great lessons for both leaders of Christian organizations as well as donors to those organizations. And folks, you can find this story at ministrywatch.com. Warren, what else do you have for us before we go today? Well, I'd like to hit a lightning round of short pieces if I could, Natasha. Okay, go. Well, first up, uh, last year, the United States saw about a 1% increase in offline giving, but a 6.8% increase in online giving. So that represents a real shift in people giving from offline, you know, through direct mail or other um, mechanisms to this online uh, system. In fact, over the past three years, offline giving has climbed about 5%, which is good, but we have been in an economic expansion over the last uh, three years. But during that same period of time, online donations have more than doubled that. They've climbed at about 10%. 
That's interesting. Where did you get that data? Well, the data come from a survey that was released this week by the Black Baud Institute, a research division of Black Baud. A lot of our listeners might know Black Baud because they produce fundraising software that's widely used in the nonprofit arena. This is the eighth consecutive year that the Black Baud Institute's charitable giving report has found an increase in giving. And Black Baud said that faith-based organizations experienced an overall increase of 2%. You can find more about that data by going to uh, institute.blackbaud.com. That's great. Now, what else do you have for us? Well, whistleblowers are playing a key role uh, in keeping organizations honest and accountable. In the past two years, uh, reform has taken place in a number of large profits uh, because of the courageous actions of whistleblowers. In fact, uh, Natasha, that's how we get a lot of our stories here at Ministry Watch. We'll have uh, you know people that have inside information and have the courage to tell us what's going on, uh, send us an email or give us a phone call, and we're grateful for that. And we do think it's important. Important, an important part of keeping ministries and nonprofits honest. But according to the 2019 Ethics and Compliance Hotline Benchmark Report from an organization called Navex Global, there's been a slow but steady erosion in the number of anonymous reports that we've been getting since 2009. According to the nonprofit Times, who first reported on this story, the federal form 990, which is a form, Natasha, that we've talked about in the past, it's what every nonprofit has to fill out uh, to disclose their finances to the public. Public, um, that form asks if a charity has a whistleblower policy. And uh, an online search of Form 990s report that of the 329,000 Form 990s that were checked by GuideStar on behalf of the nonprofit Times, only 41% had any kind of a whistleblower policy. That's really interesting. Now, Warren, we're at the end of our time today, but can you remind us again how to find financial information about Christian ministries on Ministry Watch website? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Our regular readers already know that each week I uh, write a weekly review, which is a digest of the news of the week that we think is worth mentioning, but maybe doesn't quite rise to the level of a full-blown story. And in that column every single week, uh, we have added a couple of features, and one is a list of the ministries that we've updated financial information for. So be on the lookout for my Friday email. Uh, with um, a list of all the new ministries that have been updated, or you can just go to the Ministry Watch website, and up in the upper left-hand corner, in a bright red um, box, it just says search for a ministry. You can click there, and it'll take you right to our database. I also want to mention, Natasha, and I mentioned this first the first time last week, that we're now tracking changes to the membership status of members of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. We think that the ECFA is doing an important job in the ministry ecosystem in this country, and donors should know who joins and who leaves, and we'll also be providing that information each week in our weekly report. They sound like great new services, Warren. Thank you for the reminder. And if you want to know more about the stories we've discussed today, or if you want to dig around in the Ministry Watch archives and see the hundreds of stories we have there, just go to ministrywatch.com. And that brings us to the close of today's program. Our producer is Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. The writers for today's program include Warren Smith, Sean Hendricks, Ann Stike, and Steve Raby. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And I'm Warren Smith, this week reporting from the annual conference of the National Religious Broadcasters in Nashville, Tennessee. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next week, may God bless you. 